Welcome to China Takes Over the World. This show explores China's growing global influence and geostrategic competition with the United States. I am Ying Ma. Hong Kong has very much been part of Washington's policy discussions of late. Throughout 2019, anti-Beijing pro-democracy protests rocked the city, rebuking China's encroachment upon the city's autonomy since Hong Kong reverted from British to Chinese sovereignty in 1997. Dismayed by the historic mass protests, China is imposing a new national security law on the city. And this has led U.S. policymakers, as well as Hong Kong's pro-democracy activists, to denounce the move as effectively a ban on opposition political activity and a death knell for the one country, two systems framework under which China had promised to govern Hong Kong until 2047. To discuss the U.S. response and Hong Kong's importance in the broader context of U.S.-China relations is Julian Ku, Maurice A. Dean, distinguished professor at Hofstra Law School. Julian, welcome. Thank you for joining us. Oh, thank you. Thanks. Thanks for having me. The U.S. Senate <coughs> just approved legislation that would strengthen the U.S. government's ability to sanction individuals violating the commitments China had made to Hong Kong. We do want to get your take on this latest development, but first, it would be helpful for our listeners to get some historical background to all of this. Hong Kong enjoys kind of a special status under. U.S. law, Julian. Could you start by telling us where this special status comes from? Yeah. So all this goes back to the、uh, pre-1997 handover of、um, Hong Kong from British sovereignty to Chinese sovereignty, and、um, that was an agreement between Britain and China. But the United States has.、Uh, He obviously was very interested and concerned about that handover. So, in 1992,、um, it、uh, enacted a law called the Hong Kong Policy Act, which essentially said that、um, it, it was supportive of the handover under the conditions at that time.、Um, and it said, "Look, after 1997, the United States will continue to treat Hong Kong essentially the way it did before uh, it uh, before it was handed over to China, so that it would sort of." Hong Kong would continue to enjoy、uh, its status the way it was treated as a British colony, which at that time was essentially like an independent arm of the British sort of empire, and、uh, and sort of essentially was a separate trading entity for all purposes, for economic、uh, and other purposes. So、uh, that what essentially what we say today we call it special status. What that means is that the United States in 1992 agreed that it would continue to treat Hong Kong as if it was. Essentially independent of China in the way that it sort of treated Hong Kong as sort of independent of Britain before 1997, and that meant essentially mostly economic privileges,、um, and especially that made a huge difference when Hong Kong became part of China because the U.S. trading relationship with China was much more restrictive and still is much more restrictive than it is with England. So、um, Hong Kong remained a much、um, had a much more direct. An open economic relationship、uh, under U.S. law with the United States. Now, the 1992 law also allows the president to withdraw、uh, this special status、um, 
at any time if, if he determines that um, Hong Kong's autonomy has been undermined. Um, and that was intended to sort of get some leverage over China to try to discourage China from undermining Hong Kong's autonomy after the handover by threatening to withdraw uh, U.S. sort of trade privileges. Well, in terms of these special privileges, and you mentioned they're largely economic, so does that mean that in the current trade war between the United States and China, Hong Kong is not actually affected by the tariffs that the Trump administration has imposed on China? That's exactly the simplest way to think about this is that um, the tariffs that the United States uh, put on China with respect to the trade war do not apply to Hong Kong. Just like none of the tariffs that uh, the United States ever has with China are the same as the ones with Hong Kong. For trade purposes, Hong Kong is uh, essentially a, di- a completely different entity. Um, and that's that's one of the advantages that Hong Kong has. Okay. But there are many others. Sure, sure. Now, last November, President Trump signed the Hong Kong Human Rights and Democracy Act, which, among other things, required an annual determination of ho- whether Hong Kong is sufficiently autonomous from China. How is this different from the requirements um, of the uh, Hong Kong Policy Act of 1992 that you referenced earlier? Yeah, so there are two things going on. So, um, you know, Congress over the years has been very concerned. So they would ask the uh, State Department to issue a report um, annually or biannually or in more recent years every year to to sort of report on the situation um, in Hong Kong and whether or not the U.S. continues should continue to give Hong Kong the treatment it did under the 1992 Hong Kong Policy Act. And then in, 19, in November of this past 2019, in response to the massive protests in Hong Kong over the extradition law, uh, the U.S. Congress really upped the stakes by saying, look, we're not going to just worry about autonomy in Hong Kong, but actually human rights as well. So um, actions in, by the Hong Kong government that would undermine human rights or mistreat uh, you know, um, people in Hong Kong, um, including sort of the types of uh, things that were alleged, like extradition, judicial kidnapping of Hong Kong booksellers and taking them to China, things like that, would also fall within the ambit. Remember, the original act was really just about whether or not Hong Kong uh, was autonomous, uh, the way it was promised to Britain that it would be. But the uh, 2019 law that President Trump signed would expand the scope of concern to just general human rights within Hong Kong. And then it also um, allowed or uh, different types of sanctions. So the 1992 law was really about you can withdraw trading privileges, but uh, the 2019 law expands the scope of it to sort of essentially sanction individual Hong Kong or Chinese government officials, um, freezing their assets in the United States or cutting them off from uh, access to uh, visas to travel to the United States. Uh, These are the types of individualized sanctions of individual government officials that the United States has used against Russia over its treatment of Crimea and Ukraine. Essentially, these are targeted sanctions on individuals. They're not just broad sanctions on, on Hong Kong as a, you know, as a place, but on, these are sanctions on individual um, government officials. And of course, the Chinese government was very unhappy when the act was passed last year. In late May, in response to China's announcement of a new national security law that it was going to impose on Hong Kong, Secretary Mike Pompeo determined that Hong Kong was no longer 
sufficiently autonomous from China. And this, in fact, wasn't especially surprising for anybody, especially given the the legislative history we just discussed. Now, what does his decertification of Hong Kong's autonomous status mean? What what specific actions has the Trump administration actually taken in pursuit in um, in pursuit of this? Yeah, so this is interesting because um, in the old, uh, the original law, it, there was no uh, role for the Secretary of State. It was just a presidential uh, determination, and then he would, in theory, just announce it and take action. Under the 19, 2019 law, they created a role for the Secretary of State to do a much more comprehensive analysis and then have to certify annually that Hong Kong was still autonomous rather than just reporting on what the situation was. <coughs> so... The certification itself actually doesn't really have any immediate impact. What it does is that it's a necessary step now under the the way the law is framed now for the president to now um, sort of uh, start taking away Hong Kong's trade privileges under the 1992 law. So the combination of the two laws together means that the first step is Secretary of State has to decertify. And then the second step is the president decides um, which privileges or whether all the privileges that Hong Kong enjoys under U.S. law will be um, taken away. As of now, actually, although President Trump announced that there would be uh, some steps taken, the, the steps have not actually been carried out yet. I think, um, you, know, it's, well, you know, it's been about a month, but it is surprising that they haven't actually uh, pulled the trigger yet on any of the things. There's some things were relatively minor um, Hong Kong and United States have an, an extradition treaty that's different than um, the uh, extradition treaty. Well, actually, the United States does not have the extradition treaty with China. So that type of treaty, um, I expect that will be terminated. Um, and that's a relatively simple thing to do. But they have, actually haven't implemented any of the um, measures that they're entitled to now. After the what are some of those what are some of those measures before they kind of take away Hong Kong's trading privileges altogether? Yeah, I mean, it's it's interesting because I think for years or decades even, I think we thought that this was the, the type of, it was like a bluff because it doesn't really hurt China quite in the same way. It also hurts everyone in Hong Kong. So, you know, no one's ever really figured out exactly what this would be. But I think the tariffs would be one thing, right? So imagine applying all the same tariffs to Hong Kong as they would also apply to China, which generally would be higher. Um, another thing that might be important would be export controls. So the United States limits the export of certain technologies that it deems to be potentially threatening to its national security interests. And certainly it has a heightened concern about any export of those technologies to China. Uh, currently, Hong Kong, again, enjoys this uh, separate status, and I think that's likely to be taken away. So that technology and then investment from Hong Kong corporations would be uh, subject to much more uh, stringent review, which uh, it'd be essentially treated as if they're uh, Chinese, uh, Chinese corporations. So the line, whatever Hong Kong, you know, we did blur the line between Hong Kong and China. Now that's sort of been already happening already, but I think this would formalize that process under U.S. law. We are speaking with Julian Ku, Maurice A. Dean, distinguished professor at Hofstra Law School. The U.S. Senate, as we mentioned earlier, has unanimously passed the Hong Kong Autonomy Act, which would strengthen the U.S. government's ability to designate and sanction individuals 
violating China's commitment to Hong Kong. And this bill further requires secondary sanctions against foreign financial institutions that knowingly conduct uh, significant transactions with the individuals designated. How do you see this bill as being different from existing law on Hong Kong? Yeah, so this is interesting because, um, you know, we've already piled on all sorts of potential sanctions on China over Hong Kong. Uh, but this one goes even farther. I think um, what's interesting about this one is that it's a little bit like the 2019 law, which is an attempt to target um, bad actors, people who are essentially Hong Kong and Chinese government officials who are you know, taking steps to undermine Hong Kong's autonomy from China. And so rather than just cut off Hong Kong completely, they're targeting uh, individuals. The difference here is that um, the justification for uh, a sanction in the past was, you know, uh, you know, expanded to, has been expanded. So the individualized sanctions passed in 2019, you could only justify those if you found that those people were undermining human rights um, uh, of Hong Kong citizens. Uh, so, um, Whereas this one expanded to just anyone who is undermining uh, the joint declaration and the basic law, which is a much broader concept. So now essentially anyone who is uh, under the president's uh, sort of judgment to be undermining Hong Kong's, uh, you know, uh, sort of rights under the joint declaration, which is the, the standard set by Britain and China for what, uh, how Hong Kong will be governed after 1997. And the basic law, which essentially guarantees kind of like a mini constitution, which guarantees a lot of individual rights for people in Hong Kong. So this is just a much, much broader set of uh, justification for sanctions and just specific violations of human rights. And then the other thing is that it would, and this is what really hits, it would essentially make it impossible for foreign, these are not U.S. banks, but foreign banks, foreign financial institutions to do business with anyone in Hong Kong who was under the judgment of the United States to be undermining uh, Hong Kong's autonomy in a very broad way. And so the, such individuals could potentially not even be able to have a bank account with a financial institution, uh, unless the financial institution is willing to risk some sort of sanctions from the U.S. government. Yes, I think that's right. I think that's what's really... So the real, I mean, although, you know, you might target a foreign government official, but I don't think those people are likely to be very much worried about uh, U.S. government sanctions in this respect. But if you cut them off from or make it harder for them to conduct financial transactions, um, then that, that could make a big difference. And, you know, I think the law is written so broadly that you might be nervous if you're a, a, a foreign bank that, uh, you know, even private individuals who are supportive of undermining Hong Kong's economy, like a a Hong Kong business that is lobbying for the national security law in Hong Kong that's sort of pro-China, they too could fall under this law and you'd be nervous about doing business with them um, because this, the, the sanction here is, the potential sanction here is the United States could cut you off from the U.S. financial system. And given the way the global economy is currently organized, that could be a huge blow for most foreign banks. Now, there are some banks that, you know, it doesn't matter, but for a lot of international banks, European banks, um, even a lot of Chinese banks, that would be a severe uh, problem for them. And how do you think these financial institutions or China will react? I guess the question is, how, what sort of practical effect do you think these measures would have? Obviously, they sound pretty 
concerning if if you're one of those individuals who might be designated um, and if you you're one of those institutions that might be doing business with such individuals. But w- what are some of the practical effects that you could think of? Yeah, so I think what would I mean, you know, the way businesses think about this is they'll just sort of have to they hire a bunch of lawyers and they will uh, create a little department, what they call compliance department, which will, <laughs> which will tell them, you know, who they can do business with and who they can't and give them some sort of, you know, mechanism, which they already do for U.S. sanctions law because U.S. sanctions laws are already very complicated and potentially draconian. So they would just add that to the, to the mix. Um, you know, I think the, the Chinese banks, I think, the, I think the one interesting problem here is Hong Kong and Chinese banks would have to make a choice, I think. You know, they're going to have to really, it's going to be very hard for them to, uh, to be fully integrated in both um, Hong Kong and uh, the United States. And they're going to have to cut off clients. They won't do business with certain companies. Uh, Hong Kong banks or banks doing business in Hong Kong will have a hard time doing business with uh, Chinese-owned companies that, I'm sorry, Chinese government state-owned companies that might be deemed to be undermining uh, Hong Kong's autonomy. Um, because the law is so broad that, you know, it's it's potentially almost, you know, almost everyone could be subject to a sanction mm-hmm. for this. Um, so this, I, to me, it's kind of remarkable because I think, and I, so, so the real impact here is I don't think any foreign government actors are going to necessarily take any action. But I think the the businesses, the foreign banks, European banks, Chinese banks, or maybe not Chinese banks, but Hong Kong banks, um, and other Asian, like Japanese banks, they all might be uh, super cautious here and try to maybe avoid doing business in Hong Kong just to be safe. Mm-hmm. We should add that at the moment, the, the House has not yet taken up the, the bill. So the bill has not yet passed, but its chances are, are looking pretty good, especially since passage was unanimous in the Senate. Right. The Senate is the hard one because uh, that's where I think it's easier for one senator to block it. The House... It's much harder for one member of the House to block uh, something. Right, right. Now, let's go back to to Hong Kong's um, special status. We were discussing earlier that, you know, the revocation of this status could mean the loss of Hong Kong's, you know, trading privileges with the U.S. And and in other words, uh, um, this means that with Hong Kong already deep in recession, perhaps the deepest since the financial crisis, and this is all due to last year's sustained protests as well as the current coronavirus pandemic, with Hong Kong already deep in a recession, if its trading privileges are ultimately taken away by the U.S., it's ultimately not going to be helpful to the economy of Hong Kong, to the people of Hong Kong. And as you said earlier, it's unclear how much that would actually really hurt China. And so... um, is any of at least on the trading status aspect of of this how is this supposed to be ultimately helpful to the people that us policymakers keep saying they wish to to champion yeah i mean this is a dilemma for the united states government i think um the hong kong policy act was uh was passed under the assumption that the chinese government the mainland government would would be willing would be afraid of losing the economic sort of benefits that hong kong provides to the mainland and so, therefore, that would be leverage the United States had to deter Chinese action in Hong Kong. And I think the, you know, the times have changed and the mainland government is, you know, no longer as worried about losing whatever benefit Hong Kong provides to it economically. I mean, at least it's not as worried as it was before because it's, Hong Kong is not as important economically 
for China as it was in 1992 or 1997. Right, China's economy is now much bigger than it used to be. Yeah, and a lot of the things that, uh, you know, they needed Hong Kong for then, they don't need Hong Kong for now. So so that's why that leverage that the Hong Kong Policy Act in 1992 provided was always, you know, has become less and less sort of significant. So pulling the trigger here uh, has always been a problem because it really hurts the people in Hong Kong much more than it will ever hurt anyone on the mainland. Um, and so, so that's why I think there's been a, a groping for these other types of sanctions, but this past fall when they enacted the Hong Kong Human Rights and Democracy Act law, which opened the door to individualized sanctions of government officials. And the same thing with this law that was in that passed by the Senate yesterday, which would go after the same officials plus banks that do business with them. I think we're going to see this sort of, uh, because I think people in the United States government recognize that um, they don't seem to have much leverage of, because over China, because it's sort of like, you know, Hong Kong's like a little kid and you can, you know, and China's like the, 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 the surly bad parent <laughs> and, you know, and you can beat up Hong Kong, which in theory should make the parent really upset, but maybe the parent doesn't care that much. Um, and it, what the only thing you're doing is you're beating up the little kid. And, and so that's not great. Right. So, so that's why I think the, the Trump administration was kind of boxed in a little bit because when they decertify Hong Kong, as autonomous, which I think factually is a reasonable thing to do. They don't, you know, now they have to do something to sort of back that up and all the things they do are going to hurt Hong Kong more than it'll hurt anyone in China. And so that's why they've been groping for these individualized sanctions. Um, it's not a great situation. I think the, the big picture is there's not much the U.S. can do to really push uh, China on Hong Kong at this point. Um, China is willing to take the punishment that the U.S. inflicts, and I think that's why we're in a bad spot now. You know, this current debate about Hong Kong actually reminds me a bit of the debate we had throughout the 90s on MFN, Most Favored Nation Status for China. And back then, because we were, at least many policymakers said they were appalled by China's human rights abuses, they threatened to stop trading with China. And yet, even then, those who benefited the most from trade with the U.S. were Chinese citizens, the very people Washington claimed it wanted to help. And so, you know, obviously, as we all know, ultimately, the United States decided to go ahead and trade with China and granted it permanent normal trading status and 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 um, and agreed to China entering the WTO. But but the current debate, the dynamics are almost a bit similar because there's the U.S. is once again wrestling with how, be- how, how best to, to influence China's behavior. Do you think that U.S. policymakers need to just have more tools in their toolbox to address complicated situations like these and, and specifically to pressure governments whose behavior Washington doesn't, not, doesn't like and they're hoping you know, that these governments would, would behave better under our influence? Yeah, this is a very big, a big question. I, I'm sure more tools be better, but I think the, the, the recognition has to be, I think, just that there's, even if you had more tools, there's, there's a limit to just how much the U.S. has leverage uh, over, over countries like China. And, um, and so you, it, sometimes you just have to take a sort of realistic view. Now, you still might want to do it because it's better to do this because it will have an impact, but the tools are still going to have a limited impact. So, and the lesson, I think, is here from, from Russia. Um, you know, we've, we, we adopted targeted sanctions on Russia over Crimea um, and over certain human rights act- abuses in, in Russia. And it had an impact on Russia, but it has not really 
you know, solved or really changed Russia's behavior in the way that the U.S. wanted. <laughs> and we've had sanctions on Cuba for 50 years. We've had sanctions on Venezuela more recently. It's just very hard to use this. It has def- a real impact, but it is really hard to, uh, to, care- to succeed in sort of getting the, the goal, uh, the, you know, to changing the actions of the foreign governments. And sometimes it, it, it hurts a lot. It, has, it creates a lot of collateral damage along the way, including economic damage to the people you're trying to help. So I mean, it, the more tools you have, mm-hmm. the, you know, it's better. But it's, you have to just recognize that there's just a limit to what all, even the best tools, uh, you know, can do for you. Re- recognizing the limitations of U.S. influence overseas and, and recognizing that the world is not as malleable as we wish it to be. So uh, on that very wise note, I, I think um, we'll end this, end this interview. We have been speaking with Julian Koo, professor at Hofstra Law School. Julian, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, thanks. Thanks for having me. This is China Takes Over the World, and I am Ying Ma.